Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. An original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Craig Wright is an Australian computer scientist at the heart of a multi-billion dollar battle to see who owns Bitcoin. Not the cryptocurrency, the brand. Wright has been trying to get himself recognised as Bitcoin's pseudonymous creator Satoshi Nakamoto for over seven years, but having failed in the court of public opinion, he has recently taken his battle to bricks and mortar courts as he attempts to sue his way to being awarded ownership of the Bitcoin name and the trillion dollar ecosystem that comes with it. Wright's supporters claim he is undoubtedly the creator of Bitcoin, while his detractors believe his claim to the Bitcoin throne to be based on nothing but a phalanx of lies and forgeries, supported and funded by a billionaire casino magnate. Throughout this series, myself and my co-host, semi-professional Craig Wright debunker Arthur Van Pelt, will take you through the incredible story of Craig Stephen Wright and his attempts to claim ownership of the financial revolution that is Bitcoin. This is not a story about Bitcoin, blockchain or cryptocurrencies. This is a story of David versus Goliath, of the extraordinary lengths that Craig Wright is going to to try and seize ownership of the Bitcoin brand and the damage that is being done to regular people along the way. This is episode six, Trust But Verify. Hello and welcome to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that does indeed lift the lid on the efforts of Mr. Craig Stephen Wright to gain acceptance as Bitcoin's creator, Satoshi Nakamoto. My name is Mark Hunter, author, blockchain writer and podcast host, and it is my job to guide you through the morass of events, claims, counterclaims, lies, thefts and lawsuits that all go into making up this at times unbelievable story. As ever, Arthur is on hand to offer some key insight into the actions and antics of Craig Wright as he gears up for the court case of a lifetime. Arthur, are you ready to take the next leg of our journey to Craigstown? Uh, yes, please. Okay, off we go. The first the Kleiman family knew of Craig Wright was when the ageing patriarch, Louis Kleiman, received an email from Wright on February the 11th, 2014, ten months after the death of one of his sons, Dave. Hello, Louis. Your son Dave and I are two of the three key people behind Bitcoin. If you have any of Dave's computer systems, you need to save a file called wallet.dat. I will explain what this is later. Please understand, I do not seek anything other than to give you information about your son. Know that Dave was a key part of an invention that will revolutionise the world. I will talk to you again soon. When I can, I will let you know much more of Dave. I will also help you recover what Dave owned. Dave Kleiman, who had worked with Wright for many years before his death in 2013, was known to be a computer aficionado, but neither Louis nor anyone else in the Kleiman family had ever heard of Craig Wright or Bitcoin. Why, thought Louis, was this Craig Wright person emailing him out of the blue ten months after his son's death to tell him what he and Dave had made? Louis replied to Wright, thanking him for reaching out and asking him for any further information on what Dave and he had been up to. 
Being 94 years old, Louis was clearly not the man to take up the challenge of getting to the bottom of this mystery. However, Louis Kleiman was not the only person to get wind of Wright's claim. Patrick Page, one of Dave Kleiman's business partners, also received a similar email, an email he forwarded to Dave's brother, Ira. Ira exchanged a few emails with Wright to try and get a handle on what Bitcoin was and what role his brother had played in it. The emails began very cordially, with Wright promising to explain everything, but by the end of April, it was clear that Ira had suspicions over Wright. Just as Dave believed in your vision and abilities, I share that same belief. There is no doubt in my mind that you are capable of achieving the goals you have set, and I am still in awe of your brilliance. However, since receiving the documents from the ATO and spending more time reviewing them, I feel like there are questionable discrepancies in the contracts between you and W and K, such as Dave's signatures, his resignation, transfer of all accountable value, Uyen's role of director, BAA projects, etc. No need to go into details. I can understand how you may have felt pressured to take actions to secure the business you and Dave started, and the last thing I want to do is stifle the growth of it but I do believe we need to remedy the lopsided contractual exchange. The ATO documents Ira refers to here were sent to him by an auditor at the Australian Tax Office, who provided him with copies of agreements and contracts dated between 2011 and 2013 concerning W&K, the company Wright and Kleiman had fronted together, and in particular the signing over of company assets and intellectual property from W&K to Wright shortly after Kleiman's death in April 2013. For more information on these assets and their contentious transfer, see episode 1. Wright feigned ignorance, knowing full well which transfers Ira was referring to, leading Ira to state on April 23, 2014, that Up until April 15th, I was a complete believer in what you were telling me, but you never mentioned any of the actions you were taking against W&K prior to contacting us. Wright replied with a claim that I did the action to make sure that the court signed off on what Dave and I had planned. The reason for the transfer is to use the R&D tax credit on the value of the software Dave and I developed. These conversations went on throughout 2014 and into 2015, with Wright even offering Ira a directorship with one of the companies concerned so he could take Dave's share of what Dave and he had planned. It was clear, though, that Ira wanted none of it. Although conversations continued in an attempt to find a resolution, it was clear that Wright was determined to pursue the course he had set for himself. Ira could either accept his offer or leave it. You may remember in the last episode that in November 2021, Craig Wright claimed that Calvin Eyre, Wright's sugar daddy and the man financially propping up BSV, almost invested $50 million in one of Wright's companies in June 2015, but that Wright was forced to scrap the deal, with Wright instead allowing Encrypt the pleasure of bailing him out. Here's the reason Wright gave for the deal falling apart. The deal I discussed with Calvin Eyre in March to June 2015 was for an investment in my companies in Australia. It was for an investment of $50 million US dollars for 50%. There was one condition that I get rid of Ira Kleiman as shareholder, I offered Ira 12 million USD. He turned me down. He wanted more. No deal with Calvin happens. Arthur, given that Ira apparently knew nothing of the shareholder position he'd been given, how believable is this story? Yeah, not not very believable. On the other hand, we know that Calvin was involved in uh, things in 2015, and it might be that he was involved slightly earlier already. As always with Craig Wright, there is a touch of honesty, there is a touch of truth, but a much larger touch of uh, untruth and uh, lies. So 
I wouldn't be too sure about this story. Correspondence between the pair stopped in October 2015, at the same time as the evidence packages of Wright being Satoshi Nakamoto was fed to journalists. Ira watched as Wright was outed and then unouted by Wide and Gizmodo in 2015, and then as he tried and failed to get himself anointed as Satoshi Nakamoto through the signing sessions in 2016. Then he sought legal advice. Finally, Almost four years after that first email to Louis Kleiman, the gauntlet was thrown down. Arthur, what happened on February 14th, 2018? The mailman came uh, ringing on the door of uh, Craig's uh, home uh, close to London and handed him uh, a big package with the lawsuit. And that was the start of it. Basically, it's a lot of fraud, breach of partnership, fraud, constructive fraud and uh, conversion and a few more of those uh, things. It was based on, on the story that uh, was represented by Craig Wright, that he was uh, Satoshi and Dave Kleiman helped him. And they were partners in that uh, endeavor of uh, building uh, Bitcoin and releasing uh, Bitcoin and mining Bitcoin in the years after. And they had um, a 50-50 partnership. That was the, the, the idea. But yeah, there is no, no proof for that. But there is a lot of forgeries from Craig Wright to prove that. And at that moment, I think they were not completely aware how much of it was uh, forged. So at that moment, they believed, probably believed that, uh, that whole story. And they accused Craig of taking Dave's share fully uh, bitcoin ip and uh, and the mined bitcoins he he pulled it from uh, from dave back to himself so it was a theft civil uh, civil theft so to say there's also one of the accusations in the in the lawsuit the amount that we learned uh, back then in 2018 in in june was that when they uh, reassessed uh, a little bit uh, there was a letter sent from um, ira Kleiman from one of his councils because he is using two councils in the lawsuit and they demanded no less than 80 billion dollar the Kleiman filing was backed up with contracts transcripts emails and more all of which appeared on the surface to point the finger at Wright for stealing Dave Kleiman's share of the bitcoin and intellectual property bound up in W&K and using it to enrich himself after his former partner's death as with any court case of this length and magnitude, evidence, arguments and counter-arguments can mean a narrative can shift, morph and split, which is certainly true with this case. Back in 2018, however, the arguments made by the Kleiman camp were simple and twofold. We'll start with the Bitcoin side of things. The Kleiman camp claimed that Wright and Dave Kleiman accumulated a vast wealth of Bitcoins from 2009 through 2013, much of it through mining on computers Wright said he had set up in his farm in Australia in the first two years of this spell. Seeing as there was no actual evidence of this, the Kleiman camp used the plentiful statements Wright had made to various entities on the subject as the basis for this claim. As to whether the pair actually created Bitcoin as Wright claimed, the Kleiman camp steered away from this, merely stating that this question remained unclear. In 2011, Kleiman established W&K Informational Defense, which Wright had claimed was used to mine more Bitcoin. Later in 2011, all the Bitcoin mined between the pair was transferred overseas into trusts in the Seychelles, Singapore and the UK, with possibly as much as 1.1 million Bitcoin being under their control at this time. Wright had confirmed by email to Ira that Dave could have as much as 300,000 Bitcoin separately in his possession, minus what was needed for the company's use, and potentially much more. 
The pair kept their involvement in Bitcoin so secret that at the point when Kleiman died on April 26, 2013, no one apart from Wright knew what the pair had accumulated. After Kleiman's death, the Kleiman estate said Wright concocted a scheme to get his hands on all the Bitcoin owned by Kleiman through falsifying contracts, which he used to siphon the Bitcoin off. As a result, the estate was demanding the return of half the Bitcoin that Wright had said he and Kleiman had mined. The other facet of the case related to intellectual property. Arthur, why don't you tell us about that side of things? That is a long story and a bit uh, complicated story, but it started with um, the claim of Craig Wright that he put $5,000 of intellectual property in W&K in 2008. This, of course, never happened because in 2008, W&K did not even exist. It uh, was only raised in uh, early 2011. But again, uh, I only mentioned what was claimed by Craig Wright. This IP has grown in value, according Greg Wright, to 57 million. And he wanted that back. After Dave Kleiman died in April 2013, he started a lawsuit in Australia and claimed his intellectual property back. It's more complicated than that, but it ended up that he uh, signed uh, in court for that he would only get his intellectual property back. And that was valued at that moment is for 57 million. Then he uh, pushed that intellectual property forward into the companies uh, of his Hotwire group that was uh, at the same time raised with several companies. And in this Hotwire group, this IP got divided over several companies. Over the course of 2014, he made several valuations and they run into the two, three, four hundred million already. Of course, this was only to advance his ATO tax uh, fraud uh, schemes, but he managed to get two reports with that valuation. Then it ended up that by business valuation something company, a homemade Hotwire Insight report, but it was of course just uh, on his computer, a uh, Word document and uh, some fancy colors uh, on it, and then it looked like uh, it was really valued at that. It went from something 200 up to something 300 or 400 million, and that was around uh, 2014, the valuation. And to cut a long story short, indeed, uh, during the trial, it ended up that he mentioned in uh, his private Slack room that the current valuation of his IP that is being discussed in the Climate versus Right case is $252 billion, which is an extraordinary amount, of course, but it means Climate's lawyer is immediately using that situation to create an valuation of the penalties based on that amount. Yeah, and then you get the situation that if we have a 50 50 uh, partnership, so half of that valuation should go to Ira Climate. Because it is civil theft, it can be multiplied by three for travel damages and uh, other punitive damages on other things. Yeah, it, it, it ends up going quickly to $1 trillion that Greg Wright might end up having to pay to the climate estate. And this is all because over the years he has built up the value of this IP to get money back from the tax office. And all because of that, he could now be on the hook for what it is, quote unquote, worth because of what he said it's worth. Yeah, of course, it's not worth like that, because if we look at the companies where he is working, Enchain where he is working, the number of patents that he has that has not been sold, not not one of them has been sold or licensed out or, or whatever. So 
the valuations are uh, created from thin air, if you uh, if you ask me. But again, he, he makes those uh, stupid remarks, and um, Kleiman's lawyer is immediately uh, using that uh, that situation to create uh, claims back on Craig Wright in his uh, partnership claim, presuming it was a 50-50 partnership that half of it belongs to Kleiman Estate. Wright tried to get Ira Kleiman on board with his plan for Coin Etch, which would see regular payouts to directors made up almost entirely of R&D rebates, offering Ira Dave's shares. Ira said, however, that he wanted to liquidate Dave's shares and take the money out, not trusting Wright, the plan, or the volatility of Bitcoin. Wright promised the first payout would come in October 2014, which never happened, with Wright blaming the ATO audit as holding up the payments. During this audit, Wright admitted to backdating invoices, transferring IP before judgments had been handed down, and other misdemeanours that enabled him to get his hands on WK's intellectual assets. CoinX collapsed, and with it the value inside the company, which was almost all related to R&D rebates. All in all, Wright was charged with two counts relating to illegally converting the Bitcoin holdings, breach of fiduciary duty and breach of partnership agreement in relation to the abuse of the partnership with Dave Kleiman and unjust enrichment. News of the lawsuit brought Wright's name back into the headlines again, almost two years after he had sought refuge from the fallout from his disastrous signing sessions. CoinGeek, the news outlet owned by Calvin Eyre, put their own spin on things by celebrating the fact that someone finally believed that Wright was Satoshi Nakamoto. However, this was not true. As we've already said, the initial filing never once equated Wright with Satoshi, with the document stating that the Kleiman camp thought it unclear whether Craig, Dave and or both created Bitcoin. Sometimes you have to see a draw as a point gained. Others observed the keen irony that the years-long Inception-style fraud that Wright had seemingly been perpetrating was now forming the foundation of the case against him. Four years after Wright had first told the ATO that he was Satoshi Nakamoto, and two years after failing, or as Wright's supporters say, choosing not to, cryptographically prove himself to be Bitcoin's creator, Wright was now being sued on the basis of him being that very person. Or was he? Arthur, how much of this case actually revolved around the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto? Yeah, in a sense it does, and, and in another sense it does not, because it is not part of the rulings that he will be declared Satoshi Nakamoto. It is explicitly excluded from the rulings, because they presume that he has some Bitcoin, but if he is Satoshi, is not important. So they only do truth-finding on those uh, seven uh, accusations about um, uh, fraud, conversion, uh, breach, uh, several breaches, etc., but if he is Satoshi, is not important. They just allow him to make that claim and they will let the judges and the jury figure out if that is uh, part of the so-called fraudulent misrepresentations or not. Before we get too far into this part of the story, we should state that the Kleiman versus Wright case is so vast and complex that it touches on almost every single event in the Craig Wright story that we have covered so far in this series. It is impossible to take one incident in isolation without needing to explain the tangled web that surrounds it, which often stretches back years, much of which has been discussed in previous episodes. Sadly, we cannot hope to include everything from the trial, much as we would like, and we will work on the basis that listeners are already aware of the backstory involving the points we will touch on. If this episode is your first entry into the Craig Wright story, we suggest you start from episode 1 to get a full grounding up to this point. 
A key aspect of the case against Wright was the Tulip Trust, something we have mentioned regularly in this series, and now we can finally get into it in more detail. The Tulip Trust was first mentioned by Wright in his tax dealings with the ATO in 2014. Because those transcripts are private, apart from the ones sent to journalists in 2015 that made it into the Wired and Gizmodo stories, we don't know if Wright was claiming that the Tulip Trust's contents comprised Bitcoin mined by him alone, or him and Dave Kleiman. Either way, a trust formation certificate dated June 9th, 2011, produced as part of the evidence leaked to the outlets at the time, noted that 1.1 million Bitcoin, chiefly that mined between 2009 and 2010, was being transferred into the trust to be solely controlled by Kleiman, with loans from the trust allowed if Wright needed them for Bitcoin research purposes. The Bitcoin that made it into the Tulip Trust was Bitcoin that wasn't allegedly spent on supercomputers, mining gear, and other business expenses. Purchases that were denied by the manufacturers that Wright never backed up with evidence and that the ATO didn't believe took place. While the 2011 Tulip Trust Incorporation document makes it seem like a physical transfer of Bitcoin took place, the leaked tax office transcript made it clear that this wasn't the case. The ATO was already aware that Dr. Wright didn't supply actual Bitcoin to the company, and that the trust instead purportedly held equitable interest. But this was buried in the transcript, so it was hardly a surprise people still clung to the notion of an actual Bitcoin transfer. The document laid out some intriguing conditions. If Kleiman died, Wright would be returned shares in the Tulip Trust and Company 15 months after the date of death if he so desired and that Wright would regain complete control of the Bitcoin in the trust on January 1st, 2020, via a return of control of a company to Dr. Wright. The company and trust will be managed and held in the Seychelles. There was also an incredible clause regarding what should happen if Wright should die before January 1st, 2020. Arthur, what was this clause? Well, this is about an ATO uh, officer. That was a quite funny anecdote in, uh, in, in this whole story. Allow me to read it from this trust uh, document. The amount not included to be sent to Ramona Watts will be used to show the lies and fraud perpetrated by Adam Westwood of the Australian Taxation Office against Dr. Wright. As far as we know, uh, because that, that was mentioned in a forensic reports of, uh, about all the forgeries, and in one of those reports, Adam Westwood is mentioned, and that has a pretty funny story. It is an, um, a PDF of an email, and that email exchange was between Dave Kleiman and Craig Wright, and it was backdated to June 27, 2011. And in that email, Craig makes several allegations about uh, the ATO and, and this specific employee, uh, Adam Westwood. But when Dr. Edmund went to check the metadata, he figured out that the document was made on April 17, 2014, 2.46 p.m. to be exact. But here comes the story. We know that the situation around Craig Wright around April 2014 was not so nice because Hotwire was bankrupt already in that same month. And I think Adam Westwood was also chasing him for stuff. How did he exactly create that forgery? It was made in April 2014. And I'm going to literally quote the Dr. Edmund report. By creating a PDF of an email sent to a mailing list by Dave Kleiman in June 2011, then modifying the PDF to make it appear as if it was an unrelated email exchange between Craig Wright and Dave Kleiman in 2011. And that happened again in April 2014. So he used an external email, not even an email from his 
own email box, but an external email from a mailing list. So this is a nice example of the great length that this guy is going to create his forgeries. The document, which contained other odd lines about Wright's parlous financial position, which really had no presence in a legal document, was not witnessed or date-stamped, removing any way of confirming that it was indeed created in 2011, or even at any point before its inclusion in the Wide and Gizmodo leak in 2015. It also contained a sentence that seems to have been about to explain the rationale behind the name Tulip, but was cut off halfway through, yet the aborted sentence was left in. All told, it was a very convenient document for Wright to have in his arsenal at the time, and one that, handily, could not be quickly refuted, even if it couldn't be quickly proved either. Once again in the Craig Wright story, everything is blurry and inconclusive. Andrew O'Hagan addressed the issue of the Tulip Trust with Wright too, for his 2016 piece, The Satoshi Affair, saying... I asked Wright about this, and he told me it was true that his and Kleiman's mining activity had led to a complicated trust. The trust question was persistently vague, not only how many trusts, but the names of the trustees and the dates of their formation. The only consistent thing is the amount of Bitcoin Wright is said to have had at one time, 1.1 million. He said that his Bitcoin could not now be moved without the agreement of the several trustees. He also said that Kleiman had been given 350,000 Bitcoin, but had not moved them. He kept them on a personal hard drive. Concerning Kleiman's Bitcoin haul, Wright told O'Hagan that they didn't sell their personal holdings because they didn't want to flood the market, despite being hard up for cash. Indeed, Kleiman was himself in a parlous state when he died, clearly short of money. Wright also added, in an assumed attempt at terrible irony, that Dave died a week before the value went up by 25 times. This is another fallacy. The Bitcoin price at this time was around $130, and it fluctuated between $68 and $137 for six months after Kleiman's death. It would not hit Wright's 25 times valuation for another four years. As we've already explored, it is the Tulip Trust fortune that Wright is using as collateral against a multi-million dollar loan from Calvin Eyre to pursue his legal battles, one of which is this exact case. Given the absence of credible documentation to back up the evidence of his Tulip Trust Bitcoin, Eyre clearly took Wright on his word that he was good for the money, which is a brave move given that court judges as far back as 2003 were calling Wright out over his lack of credibility during testimony and his lack of evidence when presenting his arguments. The Kleiman camp's initial filing made the parameters of the case clear. In the months after Dave Kleiman's death, Wright illegally transferred billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin and intellectual property owned by Wright and Kleiman to himself. The Kleiman estate believed that a 50-50 partnership had existed between the two, and they wanted Dave's share. As well as using Wright's own statements over the years about how much Bitcoin he and Dave Kleiman had mined, Kleiman's lawyers also pointed to discrepancies over some of the crucial paperwork surrounding W&K to back up their case. These include the allegedly falsified contracts, share transfers and deeds of loan which formed the basis of the scheme to transfer Dave Kleiman's Bitcoin and IP to Wright after Kleiman's death. Arthur, what formed the basis of the Kleiman claim in the initial filing? The basis of the case was mostly that they found this whole line of events did, did not match anymore, plus the finding of several forged documents that included uh, having signatures of uh, Dave Kleiman that never existed. They saw signatures on documents that were forgeries, false signatures. Then what they also brought in was this partnership 
there was still a lot of evidence that there was indeed this partnership between Dave Kleiman and Craig Wright. And what they also brought in as an important piece uh, was the Satoshi Affair, uh, Andrew O'Hagan um, masterpiece about the era around 2015-2016 leading to the signing sessions. And Dave Kleiman has been mentioned several times in there also. That was uh, in in large the, the, the evidence that they brought in. Part of the evidence put forward by the Kleiman estate was examples of Bitcoin holdings that Wright claimed made up some of the millions of Bitcoins he and Kleiman had mined in 2009 and 2010. These holdings, which Wright had given to the ATO as part of their investigation of his companies, were analysed by Kim Nilsson, a Bitcoin and blockchain investigator, who was an early customer of Mt. Gox, a well-known and now defunct Bitcoin exchange that went under in 2014. Nilsson identified the Bitcoin holdings Wright had offered as the following. Wright's claim. Addresses containing 110,000 Bitcoin to be held in escrow as part of a transfer of Bitcoin from Kleiman to Wright in exchange for shares in a new company. Reality. The address mentioned is just a withdrawal address associated with an entirely unrelated user of Mt. Gox and has nothing to do with either Kleiman or Wright. Wright's claim. Address holding 335,000 Bitcoin owned by Wright, with 50,000 supposedly loaned to Kleiman as part of a software development licensing and financing agreement. Reality. Internal Mt. Gox address unrelated to Craig Wright. 50,000 Bitcoin loan is one of several similar transfers conducted as part of Mt. Gox internal restructuring from a single larger coin move in 2011. Wright's claim. Address owned by Wright that sent out 250,000 Bitcoin as a loan. Reality. Bitcoin owned by Mt. Gox founder Jed McCaleb, who withdrew 400,000 Bitcoin from Mt. Gox. 250,000 Bitcoin transfer was part of a large customer withdrawal. Wright's claim. 650,000 Bitcoin claimed to be owned by Uyun Win and loaned to Craig Wright. Reality. Bitcoin spread over dozens of addresses connected mainly with Mt. Gox users, one of which being Roger Veer, internal Mt. Gox wallets, and an address that received some of the funds from the series of hacks that eventually killed the exchange in February 2014. As Nilsson points out, this list is clearly not a list of assets held in a trust or even by a single person in any way. There are more addresses belonging to other people than there are even potentially belonging to Wright, and yet these are the Bitcoin addresses that Wright uses on legal documents and in dealings with tax officials, presumably on the expectation that no one will bother to look deeper into them than to check the amounts sent and received. It should also be noted that many of the addresses that Wright claimed held his Bitcoin weren't even created on the blockchain until after the dates he said they arrived, and those addresses that did exist had no Bitcoin in them. Wright and Wynn did have Mt. Gox accounts, with Wright buying his first Bitcoin there on April 22nd, 2013, which is very likely the first time he actually got his hands on any. Wright's argument against this challenge came in November 2021, when he said, In 2013, I had provided the ATO with a list of the various Bitcoin addresses under my control. It would have made no sense for me to have done that if I did not control these addresses. That is because ownership of the addresses would have given rise to a significant capital gains tax liability upon realisation of any digital assets held in the addresses. Arthur, how easy would it have been for Wright to get hold of these addresses? 
quite easy. You can just take uh, the Bitcoin rich list and uh, pick up uh, from the first uh, 50 or uh, 100 addresses and uh, see which one he likes and which one contain uh, the numbers that he uh, that he needed at that moment and who didn't move uh, for a while or uh, are not expected uh, to be moved for a while. So he just picks them and puts them on uh, indeed legal documents, emails and in his bookkeeping presuming and, and presenting it uh, as if he uh, he owns them. And indeed, the funny thing is also that in 2013, he claimed several times that he controlled them and that he was able to sign and move uh, with those uh, Bitcoin. But that quickly changed, of course, because the ATO started chasing him uh, for the signing and he knew that he could not do it. So uh, he started making excuses. At the same time as explaining his address ownership, Wright also tackled the instance when in 2013 the ATO asked him to sign a message on one of these addresses to prove ownership, something he claims to have done multiple times during the 2016 signing sessions. Wright said that the reason he didn't do this was, for tax reasons, because by the time that request was made to me, the assets in the address were outside Australia. No, we don't understand it either. Any argument Wright had over ownership of these holdings was partially ended when the genuine owner of one of the addresses published a signed message in May 2019 stating that the address does not belong to Satoshi or to Craig Wright. Craig is a liar and a fraud. This signing utilised the same method Wright claims to have employed to sign the early blocks during his signing sessions of 2016, which added another irony to the rapidly developing list. The evidence was pretty damning, but Wright's lawyers were contemptuous of the claims against their client, calling them nothing more than an attempt to shake down the scientist, offering a typically strongly worded rebuttal to the charges against him. Plaintiff's complaint is a thin soup of supposition, speculation, conflicting allegations, hearsay and innuendo, all of which arise from plaintiff's assumption that his late brother owned a great many bitcoins when he died, Bitcoins that plaintiff cannot cash in because his brother fails to share the computer codes needed to access them. Unable to access the Bitcoin, the Kleiman estate then allegedly mined Australian tabloids for the raw materials needed to cook up his stew of contradictory, absurd and legally insufficient allegations. Wright's legal team filed a motion to dismiss the case, with Wright claiming in a sworn declaration that he was never a shareholder, member, agent, employee or representative of W&K, and so there was no case to answer. The W in the name referred to his then-wife, Lynn, rather than himself. He also claimed that any Bitcoin mining was done by him alone, and that the Florida court had no jurisdiction over him. In this same declaration, Wright claimed that two of the transcripts used as evidence by the Kleiman team, transcripts of conversations between Wright and ATO officials, in which Wright's legal representative explained explicitly how much Bitcoin Wright and Kleiman mined and sent to the various trusts, were not accurate, but did not explain how. The following months saw a flurry of discussions over the motion to dismiss and other matters relating to discovery, in which a couple of interesting things emerged. Firstly, the Kleiman estate showed how Wright repeatedly told the Australian courts that he was a partner in W&K in order to get his hands on the IP and the Bitcoin within it in 2013, but when it suited him in this case, he swore blind that there was no partnership. Secondly, Wright's legal team requested that any discovery steer clear from including information on the extent and nature, if any, of Dr. Wright and Dave Kleiman's collaboration in creating Bitcoin, which is irrelevant to this lawsuit. This is interesting because on October the 12th, 2021, Craig Wright told his followers, 
If you think November is not about my showing that I created Bitcoin, then you are delusional. The entire case is based on a premise of my being Satoshi and Ira being a greedy ass who thinks he can steal. Then again, on October 30th, he said, Let me make this entirely clear. The court case is entirely about the origins of Bitcoin and Satoshi. For all the core people out there trying to play this down, there is nothing in this court case if I'm not Satoshi. The issue is that Ira Kleiman seeks to promote Dave Kleiman as 50% of Satoshi. That is not correct. Arthur, Wright seems to be at complete odds with his own counsel here, doesn't he? Yeah, I remember that. That, that was his try to uh, to get, uh, of course, the early part uh, from his uh, history in Bitcoin excluded. Because if you're not Satoshi, then you will try to avoid mentioning too much about those early years. In this case, uh, he tried to use the excuse that the IP was created in later years, roughly around the time when WNK existed. But when they had uh, documents during the lawsuit in 2013, where he claimed that 57 million uh, falsely from, from the UK back to Australia, it uh, included uh, references to $5,000 of intellectual property in 2008 that was put in WNK. So this quickly uh, died as a, as a debunk against Ira Kleiman. But yeah, it's pretty funny that he is trying to hide the early parts of uh, his uh, satoshiness. After six months of working on the motion to dismiss the ruling, Judge Beth Bloom finally handed it down on December 27th, 2018, during which time Louis Kleiman had sadly passed away. Wright's motion was part granted and part denied, with the Kleiman estate winning on ideological grounds and Wright winning on technical grounds, with a claim that his actions amounted to misappropriation of trade secrets withdrawn due to the three-year statute of limitations in Florida having passed. Crucially, however, the case would still move forward with all key accusations intact. Discovery could begin. It was around this time, with the launch of his Bitcoin cash fork BSV, that Wright began to publicly declare for the first time since his 2016 signing session failures that he was Satoshi Nakamoto. Until this point, he had largely been coy on the matter, perhaps fearing the wrath it might endure from the community. But with his entire BSV project resting on the concept that he was Bitcoin's creator, and therefore the only legitimate visionary for the protocol, Wright the humble patent creator left the stage, with Wright the loud-mouthed aggressive bully replacing him. The man who had been accused by his former paymaster, Robert McGregor, of wanting to come out of this looking like he got dragged into it, was, again, coming out to play. With the case now definitely going ahead, months of painstaking discovery began. It didn't take long for the subject of Wright's Bitcoin holdings to take centre stage, with the Kleiman estate keen to know exactly how much Bitcoin Wright held towards the end of 2013. This information was crucial to the case, as it would form a major part of any award to the Kleiman estate should they win. Aside from the addresses already identified by Kim Nielsen as belonging to other people, the full list of addresses that allegedly contained the 1.1 million Bitcoin sent as part of the package to the Tulip Trust had never been made public. Wright had been at pains to make sure that remained so, neglecting even to tell his lawyers much about it, claiming it was too complex a matter to get into and that it had been made intentionally so. In March of 2019, Judge Bruce Reinhardt, who was now overseeing the early stages of the trial, ordered Wright to produce a list of all the Bitcoin he owned as of December 31st, 2013. But Wright complained the following month that he couldn't possibly list all the addresses in which he held Bitcoin, saying that to create such a list would be unduly burdensome. 
Judge Reinhardt responded by saying he hadn't asked Wright for a list of addresses, merely an amount of Bitcoin holdings as of that date, something he should at least have had an idea of, given that he had referred to specific numbers when discussing the trust with various people, including Ira Kleinman, the ATO, and Andrew O'Hagan. Suddenly, now, Wright couldn't have put a figure on this, obfuscating the matter by referring to addresses rather than amounts. Wright had also himself stated that he was not a trustee of the Tulip Trust, so he would have no ready recourse to the amounts of Bitcoin held in it, despite supposedly having sent it over in 2011. Wright's inability to account for Bitcoin sent to the Tulip Trust is reminiscent of his inability to prove transactional evidence for the hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin he said his companies loaned and spent between 2009 and 2013. Arthur, Wright finally caved in May 2019 and handed his lawyers a list of 70 addresses he said he'd mined Bitcoin to between 2009 and 2010. What did we learn from this list of 70 addresses? It's the list of uh, the first 70 blocks of uh, January uh, 2009, proving uh, that he knows how the blockchain works and, and, and a block explorer to to grab the addresses from uh, from those uh, blocks. Mainly, uh, it determined for him that uh, he could deliver on uh, yeah, promises, but the first 70 blocks were mined and kept in his own uh, possession. And only after block 70, uh, you have to realize that uh, blocks take uh, 10 minutes to mine. So uh, already after one hour, you already have six uh, blocks. Those first 70 blocks have been uh, mined on uh, the first day that the blockchain was properly running, and that was January the 9th of 2009. So why did he deliver those first 70? Because his claim was that after block 70, uh, he started mining into an encrypted file that uh, ended up uh, in a trust. Naturally, CoinGeek reveled in the submission of the addresses, claiming that the conclusions to draw are pretty straightforward. Wright, under the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, created Bitcoin and went on to mine the first 70 blocks for himself. To reach any other conclusion, you'd have to suspend any sense of logic. Could Satoshi Nakamoto have created Bitcoin and then brought Wright in to do the honour of mining the first 70 blocks? That doesn't make much sense. The first blocks of the blockchain were nicknamed Satoshi blocks for a reason, because Satoshi Nakamoto mined them and now Wright has given the court his proof that he mined those blocks. Clearly, CoinGeek's suspension of logic doesn't include Wright copying and pasting blocks from a public blockchain. That, apparently, is a stretch too far. The question over the first 70 addresses brought up another issue with the Tulip Trust. Wright told the court that in sending the Bitcoin over to the trust in 2011, he gave up all access to the Bitcoin within those 70 addresses, aside from requests for loans. But in 2016, he intimated to Dr. Nicholas Courtois in that famously sweary interview that he still had control over them, or at least expected to. So have you produced any um, evidence of traceability of every Bitcoins? Or have you produced any for the journalists, for other people who wanted to check about what, what happened to every Bitcoins? What do you mean, what will happen to Bitcoins? I mean, have you produced any evidence about, I have mined these Bitcoins, I have sold them or transferred them here, etc. So have you... They haven't moved. I've sent them to Halfini and Zuku, and that was it. Full stop. Yeah, Please but there have, been, there have been many, many other every Bitcoins which you have mined, right? Which I'm not going to go into all of my ones. People are speculating enough. I'm none of your goddamn business what the hell I own. You know, most, 
most people, I understand that you are sensitive about the, this question, but most people who want to uh, know about uh, I'm not uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, and you know, I know cryptographers who have been claimed to be Satoshi Nakamoto, and they told me if he's Satoshi Nakamoto, let him um, show us what he has done with his early Bitcoin. So most people are asking this question. So I don't mind, they're not going anywhere. I'm not selling, I'm not doing anything. The end. In this clip, Wright clearly states that, apart from sending some of the early Bitcoins to two individuals, the vast majority of what he mined hasn't moved, which to many who knew the story entirely undermined the fact that around a million of these Bitcoins were packed off to the Tulip Trust. Wright also says that it is his choice whether he moves this Bitcoin or not, also undermining his claims that the Tulip Trust was controlled by a bunch of trustees he, at the time, wasn't supposed to know about. The other theory, of course, is that Wright doesn't have and never has had anything to do with those first 70 addresses, and that he simply copied and pasted them from the blockchain using the same modus operandi that he used when trying to claim to the Australian courts that huge Mt. Gox wallets were his. Judge Reinhardt, as well as the Kleinman camp, were distinctly unimpressed with the submission of the 70 addresses. The Kleinman estate pushed again for information on Wright's holdings, as well as more Tulip Trust documentation, a sworn statement identifying all the Bitcoin he transferred to the Tulip Trust, and the identities of its trustees and beneficiaries. Judge Reinhardt ruled on the matter shortly afterwards, denying Wright's claims that he was incapable of collating such information, arguing that his assertion was not supported by facts. In fact, he suggested a simple solution get the information from the trustee of the Blind Trust. Arthur, given that just three years before this, two of the trustees had been contacted to give their permission for Wright to send coins from the early blocks, surely the judge's request would have been pretty simple to carry out. Yeah, one would think so. But as ever with uh, Craig Wright, he will always find an excuse to not do what everybody thinks is the most logic thing to do. Wright was given five days to submit the information, which his legal team sought to extend by 10 days due to the supposed complexity involved in carrying it out. As we can tell from a transcript of a phone conversation between Judge Reinhardt and Wright's attorney on the day of that filing, however, the judge was far from happy. There were requests for production filed and there were objections lodged to those. And the objections were that the request to know what Bitcoin Dr. Wright had on December 31st, 2013 was overly broad, unduly burdensome and harassing. Again, it was not stated that Dr. Wright transferred all his assets to a blind trust and doesn't know what he has and can't figure out what he has. On April the 18th, for the very first time, I'm told all Dr. Wright's Bitcoin are in a blind trust. So I assumed that before filing that motion, Mr. Rivero and his firm had done due diligence to determine if a blind trust exists, who the trustee is, where it is, and that they can accurately reflect to me that it does in fact exist, which is why I put you on a very short deadline to tell me about this blind trust, because you've been the most fervent advocates in this case that discovery needs to move, it needs to move quickly, that we're on a tight deadline, discovery needs to be narrowed, etc. So now I go back to my question. Why do you need 10 days to figure out what you should have known two months ago? Wright's lawyer argued that the issue of trusts was very complex and they wanted to make sure that the sworn information was absolutely unequivocally not confusing and accurate. She also made reference to the allegations of lies and things like that in this case, which she admitted that Wright's counsel were being very hypersensitive to. Judge Reinhardt was equally unimpressed with the fact that Wright's legal team hadn't demanded basic information on the trust from Wright. 
And what due diligence have you done to determine if that statement is actually true? Pardon me? What steps did you take to determine if, in fact, such a blind trust exists? Because it would seem to me, which is why I made this the quick answer, that you should know who the trustee is and where it's located at a minimum. So why can't you provide that information to me now? With regard to the location of the trust, I believe that it's probably information we can get quickly. With regard to the trustee, it's our understanding that some of these trusts are structured in such a way where our client doesn't have knowledge of all the trustees. And so this is going to require us getting more information from our client, talking to other people that have additional information that we can provide to the court, and we're searching through the documents further to see if there's any clues in those. You realise it is facially incredible that in 2011 your client transferred potentially billions of dollars of Bitcoin to someone and you can't tell me who that was. You understand that, right? We understand that, but Your Honour, I think that what's important, and I've actually discussed this a lot with the other members of my firm, is that yes, there's billions of dollars in today's money. At the time that the funds, that the Bitcoin rights were transferred into the blind trust, they were not worth billions of dollars. Reinhardt ended the call making his feelings very clear on the behaviour of Wright's legal team. But to be clear, and I think this is clear in my standing order, as you can tell, I am not happy when this happens. When someone gets a discovery request, objects to it, forces the court to rule and adjudicate the objections, and then comes back at the end and says, oh, by the way, we don't have anything and we can't get anything, because that's just a waste of the court's time. And your client needs to understand that. Your client needs to understand he is under the jurisdiction of this court. I will not hesitate to order him to come to the United States and appear in front of me to explain himself. So I don't know what other priorities he has in his life right now, but this better be one of them. As a reminder, Wright's other priorities at this time were trying to get BSV to overtake Bitcoin Cash in the mining war, pretending he had been awarded copyright of the Bitcoin white paper, and suing anyone who said he wasn't Satoshi Akimoto. Arthur. Craig Wright clearly didn't expect anyone to ever look into his Tulip Trust in this much detail, did he? Yeah, probably not. But uh, yeah, it ended up that they uh, wanted to know everything anyway, because it was uh, delivered in in evidence and exhibits in those contracts. So of course, they wanted to know more about it. And they wanted to have detailed information of his holdings at the end of 2013. So he assumed when he did everything he did in 2014 to backdate these things. He just thought someone was going to give it a cursory look and then not check any further details. But as we've found with these things before, once you go under the surface, it all just falls apart, doesn't it? Yeah, that is uh, 99 out of uh, 100 times uh, the case. The forgeries that are being created are quite sloppy and only are used in front of people that are not forensic experts and the moment those exhibits and and things get more scrutiny yeah then if they fall apart and of course that is going to happen in an uh, in a lawsuit and that's where you can see that craig is of course uh, very stubborn to uh, to show too much because he knows that when he has to deliver from his uh, trove of uh, forgeries uh, the stuff that he created in those early years from 2013 up till 2015 16 even 17, it will uh, turn out to be uh, sloppy forgeries. Reinhardt eventually agreed to the extension and Wright's legal team flew to London to try and get the information out of him. 
As we referenced in episode 4, Wright was not happy with some of the content of Andrew O'Hagan's work, The Satoshi Affair, with Wright saying in conversation with Judge Reinhardt at this time that some of the quotes attributed to Wright were a work of fiction. Given the fact that Wright was suing people for much less around this time, it's interesting to note he has never taken any legal action against O'Hagan, despite apparently being the victim of libel. In his sworn declaration on May the 8th, Wright finally addressed some of the issues presented by the court, although, as should not be a surprise by now, some of his statements merely confused matters. Wright said that he alone had mined Bitcoin in 2009 and 2010, directly contradicting emails he had sent to Ira Kleiman and what he had told the Australian courts in 2013, saying that it went straight into a trust in Panama, the name of which was redacted in the court documents. Wright added that no formal trust documentation was executed regarding the Bitcoin and that there are no transactions related to the Bitcoin that I mined. It's excusable to think that someone mining Bitcoin in 2009 and 2010 might not keep direct and diligent records of their activities given how early it was in Bitcoin's history, but this lack of evidence is troubling for Wright when it comes to backing up his story and simply reinforces what we have already heard many times. He spins a good yarn, but he just can't prove it. Alongside the existing Tulip Trust Corporation document supposedly from 2011, Wright also produced a deed of trust created by a company called Abacus and signed on 23rd of October 2012. It listed, for the first time, the trustees of the Tulip Trust along with a page of instructions as to how the trust was to play out. Finally, the world would know what Dave Kleiman did with Wright's, or their, 1.1 million Bitcoin and all that IP. Arthur, what did we learn from this deed of trust? Yeah, like you said, we first see uh, some names of uh, trustees uh, pop up, and that is uh, Craig Stephen Wright himself, Dave Kleiman, Panopticrypt, Savannah, and uh, and some holders of uh, PGP keys. And to me, it is, uh, uh, to be honest, unknown who these holders might be, but there are also three PGP keys uh, mentioned as a trustee. So it's a bit of a funny uh, construction that he created there. Indeed, the deed of trust revealed that the Tulip Trust had six trustees, Uyun Win, Dave Kleiman, two companies owned by or with connections to Wright, a third company called Savannah Limited, a person identified only as being the owner of three specific PGP keys, and Wright himself. Interestingly, the owner of the PGP keys was later identified as Satoshi Nakamoto, i.e. Craig Wright. This is despite the fact that Wright himself vehemently states that PGP keys only denote ownership, not identity. This list, of course, completely contradicted Wright's April 18th filing in which he stated he was not a trustee. He was, directly, two times over. And then there were the companies, two of which Wright owned outright and Savannah Limited, whose registered address was referenced in the 2016 Panama Papers as being tied to potentially illegal financial activity. Once more, Wright's attempts to clear the waters just ended up swilling the silt. Wright also revealed during this deposition that a second Tulip Trust existed, with himself and his wife, Ramona Watts, as beneficiaries. A crucial detail that changed with Wright's May deposition concerned what the Tulip Trust held. Until this date, everyone had been working under the assumption that Wright had sent Bitcoin to the Trust. However, as those who had gone through his leaked 2014 tax office transcript already knew, Wright revealed that the Tulip Trust received not Bitcoin, but the ownership to companies that themselves had access to the 1.1 million Bitcoin, all of which was bound up in encrypted files. This assertion also handily explained why the coins from the first 70 Bitcoin blocks hadn't been moved. 
Importantly, Wright also revealed that access to the encrypted file that contains the public addresses and their associated private keys to the Bitcoin that I mined requires myself and a combination of trustees referenced in Tulip Trust 1 to unlock based on a Shamir scheme. Arthur, I'm six years old and I'd like an explanation of a Shamir scheme, please. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. If you have a file, it will be split up in several parts in, in so-called shares. They contain encrypted keys normally, and only by putting those shares together, using the keys to unlock them, but it needs a minimum, or all, but normally a minimum, of shares that should be put together, and using the keys, then you can unlock the information in those files. Is it a bit like having a safe at a bank with eight locks and eight keys and you all lock it together and you give the eight keys to all these different people and it can only be unlocked when a certain amount of those keys all come back and go into the locks and unlock at the same time? Yeah, basically uh, basically you can, uh, you can say that indeed. But it's like a digital version of that. Yeah, and um, the only difference is, is that you can uh, work with a minimum number of shares. So let's say you have seven shares, but already with three, four or five, you can decide to unlock this, the secret or, or information. What the declaration didn't provide, however, was the list of Bitcoin holdings as of December 31st, 2013, which was supposed to be its entire purpose. According to Wright, this was because he didn't have enough slices to be able to open the encrypted file to find out, despite being in a much greater position of power than he had assumed. This information wouldn't be publicly available until mid-June, by which time Judge Reinhardt had had enough of what he assumed to be Wright's ducking and diving. The motion to compel is granted. On or before June 17th, 2019, Dr. Wright shall produce a complete list of all Bitcoin he mined prior to December 31st, 2013. Dr. Wright shall appear in person before the undersigned on June 28th, 2019 at 9am to show cause why the undersigned could not certify the facts recited above to the Honourable Beth Bloom and order Dr. Wright to appear before Judge Bloom to show cause why he should not be adjudged in civil and or criminal contempt by reason of these facts. At the June 28th, 2019 hearing, the court will also determine whether, independently, sanctions short of contempt should be imposed for Dr. Wright's failure to comply with the court's March the 14th, 2019 order. Craig Wright was going to Florida. The prospect of being hauled before a judge to answer for his actions clearly angered Wright. Fury he took out on Ira Kleiman just days after his summons was sent, in an explosive blog post he aimed at his combatant. Entitled On Scammers, Wright took Ira to task over his refusal to accept Wright's offer of shares in the company he claimed that he and Dave were starting up before Dave died, which the ATO had already stated Wright was only able to establish after defrauding W&K. Wright's post began with the claim that Ira Kleiman was never close to his brother. In fact, the reason he's not in the will is that Dave didn't even like him and goes downhill from there. He accuses Kleiman in a roundabout way of being involved in the 2015 hack on his computer, which saw blog posts and documents backdated and doctored to make him appear to be Satoshi Nakamoto, a claim Wright had tried to monetize months later. 
He then launched into an astonishing diatribe, ironically claiming that Kleiman is involved in a tax fraud and is a con man, that his entire purpose in life is greed, and that the only reason he refused Wright's offer of the company's shares was because he would have to pay tax. Wright also seemed to blame Kleiman for wanting to liquidate his brother's holdings, even if it was for less money. Wright had laid out for Ira how good the opportunity was, but Ira was having none of it. And a good thing too. Had Ira stayed with Wright, it would have led to nothing more than a tax investigation and the closure of the company. Wright also suggested that Ira wanted me to give him money under the table so that he would not pay tax, and that Ira worked with the tax office in Australia to falsify information in an attempt to force me into liquidation. None of these accusations made it further than the blog post, and certainly not into a court, where, once again, evidence would be required to back them up. A clearly embittered Wright ended the blog post by saying, The simple fact of the matter is that he tried to rip off Dave's father, his own father, don't forget, and lied about the nature of how he became executor. The truth of Ira Kleiman is that he is a greedy con man who helps destroy things, and as a consequence, will likely be sued for fraud very shortly. He wasn't. A couple of days before this tirade, and just days after finding out he was being deposed in front of a judge, Wright was speaking at the annual CoinGeek conference in Toronto, where he made a number of startling claims. Arthur, what were these claims and accusations that Wright made? Yeah, this is from uh, from an era where Craig Wright came up with uh, lots of news stories and, and outrageous claims. And one of those claims was that in the old days, before Bitcoin, he created uh, technology that had brought down uh, 400 illicit websites. No, that, that's too crazy to even mention that uh, we have no proof of that uh, ever happening. Also, he was uh, making uh, the most uh, crazy claims about, uh, for example, uh, Lightning Network, that it would never work. The fatal segment flaw that will uh, never be revealed. I remember he claimed uh, that 30% of the money that was circulating in Binance was used to fund prostitutes, hookers or something. Prostitution and female enslavement. Yeah, uh, crazy idea. (laughs) There is absolutely no proof of that, uh, that any of these exchanges were ever involved in, in those things. This Toronto conference also featured an amusing and perhaps rather telling slip from Wright when discussing the Bitcoin white paper. There's this whole section, I remember some white paper um, back in 2008 had this section on how identity worked in Bitcoin. I remember reading it probably when I wrote it. Perhaps Wright's mind was on his imminent court date rather than on his conference talk. If this verbal slip-up was bad, it was nothing compared to the holes he would dig for himself in Miami, some of which the world had already heard, and some of which were absolutely brand new. And we'll hear about them in the next episode. Arthur, that brings us to the end of episode 6, which is kind of a shame because the best is yet to come, isn't it? Yeah, totally. We will now, uh, in next episode, we will learn about uh, the players uh, in in the lawsuit and... um... We will hear about anecdotes uh, where your head will spin. It literally will, literally will. Fantastic. Well, as always, thank you so much for your knowledge and insight. Yeah, thank you, Mark. See you next time. Yep, see you next time for episode seven. Don't forget, you can follow Arthur on Twitter at MyLegacyKit for regular updates on Craig Wright, or for more in-depth pieces on Wright and his activities, you can follow him on Medium, also at MyLegacyKit. 
A word of warning though, Arthur's work naturally contains spoilers, including key events that we'll be discussing in this series, so please be advised of that before you take the plunge. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to episode 6 of Dr. Bitcoin, The Man Who Wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. If you've liked what you've heard, we'd love it if you could rate and even review us on your podcast app of choice to help us spread the word. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast too in order to get the episodes the moment they drop. For the latest updates on new episodes and bonus material, you can follow us on Twitter at DrBitcoinPod, that's at DRBitcoinPod, and you can contact us at DrBitcoinPod at gmail.com, that's at DRBitcoinPod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, why not drop us a few shekels or a few sats via the links in the description. Thanks once again for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Written by Mark Hunter, with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt. Editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.